Shannon Rayanne Turner was a 33-year-old woman from Indianapolis, Indiana. She was a free spirit who would travel wherever her heart took her. On December 4, 1997, she went to work at Babe's Showgirls, but didn't come home after. She was never seen again. I'm Ed Denzel, and this is Unfound. careful what you ask for. You just might get it. Who said that first? Some people believe it was a Chinese proverb. I'm not so sure. I tracked it down to Johann Wolfgang von Goethe. To us English speakers, his last name looks like Goth. What does it mean? It means we rarely take into account what could come along with one of our wishes being granted. Lottery winners are a perfect example. I mean, who doesn't want to win the lottery? But many of those winners end up blowing their entire winnings, all of it, millions of dollars. And in fact, there's a recent story from the United Kingdom about a woman who won the lottery, blew all of her money, and is now suing the lottery commission for allowing her to win. That's a true story. The Gertrude statement came to mind as I was comparing the disappearance of Shannon Turner, especially what happened a few years after, to the cases we've covered before on Unfound. Because a common statement is, why won't the police do something? It's obvious who made the person disappear. Families ask that a suspect be charged and brought to trial because it all seems so clear. And they get frustrated when the wheels of justice turn so slow. And as you know by now, I feel for every one of these families, and I share those same frustrations. In the case of Shannon Turner, we should think of this episode as a cautionary tale. The Turners got the wish that every family wants, a trial. Even though for the record, unlike many other families, the Turners weren't asking for it because they personally believed the case was weak and knew the dangers of failure. But now they're the ones who have to live with the prosecution's haste to bring Shannon's disappearance to trial. I guess the wheels of justice can spin too fast. As well. And now, a summary of the case. This is brought to you by my friend Megan Good's site, charlieproject.org. Shannon Turner had made plans to go to Wisconsin, where a family lived, for Thanksgiving 1997. She told them she'd be bringing her boyfriend, David Mays, a man she seemed to be serious about. However, Thanksgiving came and went without Shannon showing up. This was not unlike Shannon, as she had a reputation for being a bit flighty. It also didn't help that at the time, her car was at the mechanics getting worked on. So Shannon had to rely on others to travel from place to place, or she took public transportation. Around that same time, she called her family in Wisconsin, but made no mention as to why she hadn't shown up for Thanksgiving. Yet, she did say she'd be coming home for Christmas four weeks from then. Shannon's family became concerned when Christmas also came and went with no appearance or call from Shannon. It was only then that they determined none of them had heard from her since the month before during that last phone call. Still, the family wasn't worried because Shannon could take off on a moment's notice for Las Vegas, San Antonio, or elsewhere. It wasn't until January 1998 when her landlord called 
wanting to know when Shannon was going to come pick up her stuff, thinking she had vacated the premises, that the Turners figured out Shannon was a missing person. An investigation by both the family and the police determined the last time she had danced at Babe's Showgirls was December 4th, 1997. This was backed up by an animal control report showing that on December 6th, a neighbor called to say that Shannon's dog had been left outside for three days. Research done by Shannon's family also turned up the fact that her boyfriend, David Mays, was an enforcer for the Outlaws motorcycle gang. The rumor was that Shannon had broken up with Mays shortly before she disappeared. Mays ended up going to jail a few years later with several other outlaws for racketeering, among other charges. The interview is with Shannon's sister, Valerie Turner. Shannon's brother, Greg, also contributed to this episode. Unfound News. Nate Hale from the Conspirators podcast interviewed me a couple days ago. He'll be playing the interview in a couple weeks, so please look for it. Likewise, I'll be playing the interview I did with him around the same time. We did it as a cross-promotion to introduce our respective audiences to different programming, since our shows are in the true crime genre, but not exactly the same. Please check his podcast out on iTunes and give him a nice review. I'm going to start working on a book. Right now it's going to be called The Cases, Volume 1. It'll be all the episodes I did in roughly the first year of this podcast's existence put into written form. So pictures of the victims, maps if relevant, my raw notes from the conversations with guests, transcriptions of every interview, contact information, and my opinions on each disappearance. Yes, it's going to be a huge book. But I think this is where Unfound needs to go. The goal is to solve cases, and that means taking Unfound outside the confines of podcasting. Really, Unfound needs to be everywhere. TV, radio, podcasting, books, etc. And frankly, this will also give Unfound the ability to stay ad-free and Patreon-free. I'll keep you posted as the process continues. And finally, yep, the Unfound Meetup. Nope, still don't have an official name yet. Madeira Beach Library, 6 p.m., May 9th. This is also where Unfound needs to go. Crowdsourcing and networking by regular citizens to solve cases. Where you can find Unfound. On Twitter, at Unfound Podcast. On Instagram, at Unfound Podcast also. The email address, unfoundpodcast at gmail.com. On Facebook, the Unfound Podcast Discussion Group. It's been a real spectacular week there, I just want to say. There you can talk to other listeners, talk to me, and talk to my guests. I also need to give a shout-out to listener Ray McFadden, who did some great work right after hearing last week's episode concerning the disappearances of Peggy and Patty McDaniel. You can subscribe to Unfound at Podomatic and iTunes, and thanks to those listeners who gave Unfound some five-star reviews this past week. Deeply appreciated. And please mention Unfound at the popular places like WebSleuths, Reddit, Podcasts We Listen To, and all other true crime websites and forums. A couple notes about this interview with Valerie Turner. I think it's going to show you that biker gangs are just as bad as they have ever been. They're not something that reached their heyday in the 60s and 70s, and they've like calmed down since. 
And in fact, within the last 10 years, there have been some very high-profile shootouts between biker gangs that have gotten innocent people killed. Also, and I didn't even know this when I started looking into the disappearance of Shannon Turner, this particular week in April of 2017 is very important to this case. And I'm going to allow Valerie herself to explain that to you. And in fact, this particular episode is not just about letting you all know about Shannon Turner and what you can do to help the Turners. But it's also kind of a public service announcement. Once you hear what Valerie has to say, you'll know what I mean. I'm so happy to have on this episode of Unfound the sister of Shannon Turner, Valerie Turner. Valerie, welcome to Unfound. Thank you, Edward. Valerie, tell the listeners a little bit about your sister, Shannon. What do you remember about her? Maybe some images that come to mind when you hear her name. So Shannon was a really outgoing person. Um, She had an immense amount of friends. Um, She was full of spunk and laughter and and lived life to the fullest. Um, She was um, was that way probably all her life. Um, As a child, even, um, she was pretty outgoing and outspoken and she just had an awful lot of friends. Um, she made friends really easily. And was she your older sister or younger sister? Um, she was the middle child of six. I'm the oldest of six. Wow. And she was a third oldest. Okay. And how, how many would you say you're three years older than her? Four years or? Um, about four, four years. Four yeah, years. A little over four years. Okay. And would you uh, would you say that you two were close, given the, the age difference? Um, we were. We were very close. We shared a a bedroom growing up as kids. Um, our family didn't have a whole lot of money, so um, her and I shared a bedroom. We shared a bed. Um, we uh, mm-hmm. we lived side by side um, until I was um, fifteen and and had moved out of uh, moved away from home. Um, so, yeah, we were very close, and I moved away and eventually moved to Milwaukee um, to go to college, and she would come up and visit, and um, we spent a lot of time together. You you said that, you know, she's a very outspoken, outgoing person, but you and I have talked about that, um, and I've gotten to know you a little bit, you're a little bit of a different person. Where do you think that kind of personality uh, she got that from. Was that a heritage trait, or what do you what do you think that was? Why do you think you two were a little well, bit different? I think part of it, and part of it is that we're the same, and that we're very vocal, and we say what's on our mind. And I think that that came from our mother. Um, but I'm more of a down to earth kind of person, and she used to say that she was leather and I'm lace. Um, i more down to earth and plan what I do. And she was more spur of the moment. Let's do it. Let's do it now. Let's, let's go have some fun. Okay. And being that this is going to be a top of the conversation, I think we should just bring this up down. Do you remember when you found out that she had gotten into dancing? Um, yeah, she, she actually started with the exotic dancing 
pretty early on. Um, she was a very slim um, and uh, large-chested woman um, and um, very attractive, and she even wanted to do some kind of modeling um, and and then talked to some people about that. Um, but um, it was it was part of her outgoing personality, I think, that pulled her into that world. Um, she she maybe did it a few times and probably made a lot of money at it, and um, and it was easy work for her um, compared to the cash that she got. And so I think that that pulled her in even deeper into that that type of business. And but she was also an aunt. To, you have a you have a, a couple sons, I believe. Two sons? Um, I do. I have twin boys that okay. were born the year before she disappeared. And okay. um, she adored them. I mean, she was so, so happy to be the aunt of twins. And right after they were born, she came up from Indian, Indiana to Milwaukee um, to to see the boys in the hospital. She actually showed up at the hospital they were um they were born um three months premature and oh were on oxygen and in um, heart monitors in an nicu unit for three months and she came up to see them in the hospital and she brought them some little presents and um she was just ecstatic and then their first christmas that um exactly a year before she disappeared that first christmas she came to visit them and we actually had video of her holding the babies and she was excited to be an aunt um, to, to my twin boys. Great. Great. Let's talk about the year 1997 things that before we get to the disappearance, uh, of course you were just a, a new mother at that time. What else do you remember or maybe we can even go back a little further. What do you remember about Shannon's life, maybe that year, the couple years before, and what you knew about it before her disappearance? What What do you think about in that um, time? Well, I, I do remember that um, even in, um, you know, going back 10 years before that, she kind of moved around a little bit. She had... Um, she had lived in San Antonio for a while. Um, she had um, gone back to Indianapolis, um, and then she moved to Las Vegas for a while, and then she went back to Indianapolis again. So Indianapolis had kind of become her home base. Um, I know that she had had an apartment there that she had kind of settled down into um, and had been there for for a little while mm-hmm. um so she, she she did move around a little bit she did travel um she would leave indianapolis for a little while and with the business that she was in she could just stop dancing for a while and she would just go um and then she would come back and she would resume dancing she was just a free spirit wherever whatever the her inclinations were she was going to follow them the wherever the wind blew her pretty much right right okay and so in 1997 she was in indianapolis 
And um, when, and we're just going to talk about him, just his bio right now. Um, when right. did you first hear about the name David Mays? Um, I believe um, I never actually heard his name until after she had disappeared. There was a guy, quote unquote, that she had she had called um, prior to um, Thanksgiving of 1997 and had said that she would be coming home and she was bringing a guy with her. He was supposed to be someone special hmm. um, that um, she wanted us to meet um, and that she would be bringing him with her. And so that's pretty much all we knew um, prior to um, like November of, of 1997. Were you surprised by that? Given that she tended to move around, it had, to your knowledge, did she ever talk about a guy like that before? Someone, you know, to quote you, someone special. Did she ever have any um, other someone specials in her life before this time? There were guys. Um, there were there were probably several. Um, there was a guy, um, I believe, that when she went to San Antonio, there was another guy, I believe, when she went to Las Vegas. Um, and actually, the, the guy that brought her to Indiana originally mm -hmm. um, had brought her to Las Vegas. And I think that he stayed in Las Vegas and she moved back to Indiana. Either that or she came back with him. Not quite sure about the whole story there. So there were guys that she, a, a couple of guys that she had serious relationships with, but nothing. Um, I mean, the guy from Las Vegas and Indiana that like that connection there. Yeah, he was pretty special, um, but there was never any talk about marriage. Um, not to the family, um, and um, and there wasn't with this guy either at the time prior to her disappearance. With David Mays. We had no idea that she was planning or possibly being engaged to anyone. Do you remember how you even found out that marriage was the top? Being that you didn't even know his name, was that something you got uh, from another family member or from a friend? How did you get this idea that that she and David might be engaged or something like that? Do you remember? We did not learn that until after her disappearance. Okay. Um, it was it was revealed to us through some interviews that I believe the, the police had conducted, and my brother had also gone to Indianapolis after she disappeared and spoke with many people. Um, associated with the club where she was working. He talked to many of the women mm. there, and they revealed that. Okay. So we had no idea. Okay. Fair enough. Just one more question about this, and then we're going to get into a little bit of the circumstances. Uh, had Shannon ever brought any other men, boyfriends, to Thanksgiving? Had she ever done that before, to your knowledge? Never. Never. Okay. Never. Let's, never. Let's move into closer to the time that, that she disappeared now. 
we need to set this up with this fact, which I think is pertinent to her disappearance. She was having car problems at the time. Her car was in the shop. Uh, do you remember when that started and how long you know that had been going on? Because we found out that she had been getting uh, rides to work. you know anything more about that? Um, we didn't learn until um, probably into a month after after we found out she was missing mm -hmm. um, that she she had a car that was um, in a shop. Um, we were contacted by um, a guy that was a friend of hers, um, and he said, "Hey, I've got this car." Um, I, I've got this Shannon's car um, that's been in my shop. I've been kind of holding it. I, um, she wanted me to do some work on it. Um, what do you want me to do with it? And um, eventually my brother and my, my two brothers drove to Indiana and retrieved that vehicle. So what you're saying is that she had disappeared you probably weren't even, you didn't even care at that point where a car was, but you didn't even find out the car was in the shop till like January of 98 or sometime like that. True. And she didn't, we, we didn't even know she own, actually owned a vehicle. Um, she, to my knowledge, had, had never really owned a vehicle ever that I knew about. She traveled with people. She'd catch buses. She'd take the train. Um, but but she had never driven her own car. Okay, so you weren't even aware at this time. And once again, listeners, remember, you were a new mother. You had your own things going in your life. It's not like you knew everything about her life, but you Correct. didn't realize you didn't realize that she had a car. That was a surprise to you. Okay. Yeah, we were, we were not aware of that. Okay, so she was going to be coming for Thanksgiving. She would have been coming in somebody else's car because her car was in the shop. Yes. Um, I, I mean, I wouldn't have, I didn't know whether she was coming in somebody else's vehicle. Um, she could have been taking the bus or the train, um, but she was bringing somebody else. So I think there was an assumption that she would be traveling with that person. Okay. Now what happened at Thanksgiving? She said she was going to show up, but what happened? Um, she never showed up. She just didn't show up. Um, we all had Thanksgiving and um, Thanksgiving together, and um, it wasn't really a, a huge surprise that she hadn't showed up. And we probably kind of assumed that she didn't she didn't have transportation or something else came up. Um, but um, as I said earlier, she intended to blow with the wind, and sometimes she would say she was coming. And she didn't, but it, eventually she she would turn up. And you were that didn't bother you at all. Didn't worry you. You didn't think, well, maybe something happened to her. That was just kind of the way no, uh, Shan, Shannon not was. At that time, okay. Not at that time at Thanksgiving. Um, mm -hmm. You know, um, because it had only been a few weeks since she had been spoken to on the phone. Um saying that she was coming so we weren't at that time worried about her um that she just because she didn't come didn't mean that there was anything wrong okay um, because there was within two or three weeks of that time period 
someone had spoken to her. And where was Thanksgiving being held uh, that year in 1997? Um, it was either at my mother's in Wisconsin or or in Kenosha, Wisconsin, or my home in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Now, there was a phone call, and this phone call is going to play a role later in this interview, that she made to your family's house at some point. We're just not sure all these years later if it was before Thanksgiving or after Thanksgiving, but it's very important to this case. Um, what can you tell the listeners about that phone call? I know, once again, we're a little shady on the details of it, the date, but otherwise, what can you tell the listeners what you know about it? Sure. So what I what I remember is that um, a cousin of mine who had been living at my mother's house, um, no other family members were home that day, and the phone rang, and he spoke to Shannon. Um, and I believe at that point she said that she would be home for Thanksgiving, um, and that message was relayed to um, the rest of the family. Um, and um, and that was pretty much all we really knew. She didn't she didn't talk to him for more than a, a minute or two, um, and that message was relayed. Um, and so that's. Uh, and she that's called. And she called collect too, didn't she? Called collect. She did. She called collect. Okay, and listeners we, need um, to remember that she didn't say anything about Christmas or anything. Um, First of all, being that your cousin answered the phone, is she is he or she positive that that person on the phone was Shannon? He was positive. So we get back to Thanksgiving. Listeners, please remember that phone call. So we have Thanksgiving. She doesn't show up for Thanksgiving. And things just kind of go through December uh, as they were. And everybody's thinking that uh, she was going to come home for... Christmas, but she doesn't. What then happens in your family? Well, there were conversations that um, we were all a bit surprised that she didn't show up for Christmas um, because of all the holidays of the year, she never missed Christmas. Um, the fact that she had uh, one-year-old nephews um, that um, this that would be celebrating Christmas. She hadn't seen them in probably, I think it was a year. I think it was from the previous Christmas that she had seen her nephews. Um, we had had a conversation way prior to Thanksgiving, um, and um, I had actually asked her to be godparent um, to the twins, and um, and we had had a conversation about how I needed uh, two high chairs for the boys. And she had said, well, um, let me get those. That'll be my Christmas present to them. And so we were going to go shopping for high, high chairs when she, when she came home for Christmas. So there was a little bit of conversation that she would be home for Christmas. But that was, you know, a couple of months before. What you're saying is from Thanksgiving to this time that your family got alarmed when she didn't show up, you really didn't know anything um, was wrong. You didn't suspect anything. You certainly didn't know that she hadn't been seen in the Indianapolis area since December 4th. 
we had no idea no, at all. I, mean, I mean, there was no way for us to have any inkling that that was an issue. So what did your family do first? Once she didn't come home December 23rd, December 24th, you get Christmas, who did what in your family? Did you start making phone calls? Did somebody drive there? What What did you all do? Well, we did try and call phone numbers we had had for her. Um, because of her kind of moving around type lifestyle, uh, and and you have to see that this was prior to the big cell phone push. She didn't have a phone all the time, um, her, or her phone would get disconnected, and she wouldn't have a phone number for a while. So numbers we had didn't work. We weren't able to reach her, and concerns had been growing um, until I read received a call in January. And tell the listeners about that call. So her landlord um, called and asked me if Shannon was coming back to Indianapolis to pick up her things. And at that time, I said to him, um, what do you mean pick up her things? Um, isn't she there? And he said, he assumed that she was still in Wisconsin from Christmas um, and that um, he had all of her stuff boxed up and did we want to collect it. At that time, I told him, Shannon never came home for Christmas. She never made it to Wisconsin and we have not seen her and we don't know where she is. And that's when I became extremely alarmed. Um, and after hanging up from talking to her landlord, I immediately telephoned the police and started a missing persons case. And tell the listeners what the the police found, um, what they figured out, and maybe tell the listeners about the dog that Shannon had and and how they narrowed this this time frame down to the date all these years later that is it kind of accepted as the day that she was last seen and disappeared. How did that all happen? Okay, well, um, I know that they conducted interviews um, at the place where she worked and tried to speak to as many people there as possible. Um, it was narrowed down to a time frame um, uh, around December 4th. Um, or the evening of December 3rd, um, she had uh, she had a dog um, that um, when she'd go to work at night, she would um, tie up out in the backyard. Um, and then when she came home, the dog would obviously come in the house. Um, and um, sometime between December 3rd and um, like December 6th, um, it was probably a few days after she disappeared, so probably around December 6th, neighbors um, called um, either animal control or the police and reported this dog having been left out there, no food, no water, um, and they were concerned. And that's when animal control came out and took the dog. That was more the uh, information that the police had found out um, because we 
we weren't aware of any of that at that time. Um, and and obviously we're three weeks into January, um, and the dog is, you know, already probably been adopted out. Um, mm-hmm. But the police attempted to do some investigating. Um, I think that they were key in um, in finding her vehicle. Um, and, there was and, still there um, was still like you mentioned before that had been worked on that had been fixed and but it still hadn't been picked up. Been sitting in a in a garage um, at this guy's shop, correct? Okay. Um, but I, I didn't um, I didn't get a whole lot of urgency when I first reported it on the on the that January evening when I called the police um, because she was an adult. Um, because there was no indication of foul play um, as far as her apartment. Um, And then later on, um, because her landlord had packed up her entire department, there was no real investigation done looking at that apartment. For forensics Um, or anything else. I mean, that guy, the landlord, man or woman, uh, went in there. Wow. And he had he had cleaned out the apartment. Um he did he was questioned and he did say that there didn't seem to be anything out of the ordinary when he packed up. There was no blood, there was no look of um the place being um trashed or or things toppled over, um mm-hmm. any sign of a struggle or anything like that. Um so uh, there was there was no reason to suspect that anything had occurred at that location, um, no. but it did um, because he had cleaned this place out. He wanted to re-rent the apartment. Um, there was nothing further um, that he could do and the police could do at that time. But initially, they didn't they didn't take this very seriously because she was an adult um, and because of the quote unquote lifestyle that she was living the the yeah. job that she was in right. um, it didn't seem to be a major concern to them um, for a short while um, until they they started looking into this case and the police did they go to her work and ask questions like did she show up for work on December 3rd did she end up there how did she end up there and who drove her to work and who might have picked her up from work? What did they find out? So I don't really think that they know who drove her to work. Um, she did show up at, at work either on the 3rd or the 4th, and um, she did work her shift. Um, no one really seems to know um, who picked her up that night. Um, a lot of these girls were questioned. Um um, at least the girls that were still there, um, these girls kind of tend to be a little transient, um, but they spoke to a lot of them. She was friends with a lot of them, um, and uh, they had uh, reported to the police that Shannon was engaged to this David, mm-hmm. that she had two days prior, um, they were supposed to go and get a marriage license. Um, and Shannon called it off. 
um, and did not did not go. She broke it off with him. Is what the, her coworkers, um, girls that worked at this place, had told. Was David Mays seen at the strip club the night that um, probably the last night that Shannon worked uh, at the strip club? Was he seen there that night? Not to the best of my knowledge. To your knowledge, did the police ever talk to him about the disappearance, at, at least at that time in late 1997 or early 98? Um, did the police ever talk to David Mays about the disappearance of Shannon? Um, they may have attempted to talk to him at that time. I know at later dates they did attempt to talk to him. Um, hmm. But I don't know specific incidences shortly after her disappearance where I was told that they t- spoke with him. Okay. Um, I know that the first time they spoke to him, he referred them to his lawyer. Now, let's talk about that phone call uh, that had been mentioned before. We're not sure if it happened before Thanksgiving, after Thanksgiving. Uh, what did you find out about? Was that something that your family found out about the phone call? Or was that something the police found out as to where she had made that call from right around Thanksgiving? Um, that was something my, my family found out about afterwards. We, um, because it was a collect call, it appears um, on a phone bill. And when we, um, when we realized that that phone bill was important um, as to where that call came from. That phone bill was was dug out. We found that phone bill, and um, there was a number on it. Um, and so we attempted to call that number. Um, and um, I don't know at what point we found out, but we eventually found out that that phone number belonged to John Walker. Right, and I want the listeners to remember that name because it's going to come up here very soon. Now, let's get a little bit more into what you ended up finding afterwards. Once Shannon disappeared, months later, what did you find out about David Mays, who he was, and what kind of guy he was? What did you find out? So, um, through a lot of detective work by my brother, um, and um, some information from the police, uh, and I do have to say it, the information from the police was extremely limited. Um, we learned that David Mays was an outlaw motorcycle um, biker from this outlaw motorcycle gang. And um, we learned that he had a role. He had a big role in this gang. Um, he was um, what uh, the gang considered an enforcer, um, which means that he carried out, um, if the gang wanted somebody beat up or they wanted somebody's legs broke, um, that that is my impression of what his job was. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I've never been in a gang, so I, I don't know how those roles of work. Course. Of but course. we did learn that this gang is not your typical motorcycle club. 
Um, there are a lot of really great motorcycle clubs out there. Um, but we did learn that this gang is they they deal arms, they deal drugs, um, and um, they're not really nice guys. Yeah, it, which what uh, Valerie is saying when she says outlaws, not like small case O outlaws. The name of the gang is actually called the Outlaws. In fact, probably more people uh, are more familiar with like Hell's Angels. This is another version uh, of a like a, just another group, another gang called the Outlaws. Uh, did that surprise you? I mean, that that really had to worry you when you first found that out, didn't it? Um, when I found out um, about the gang, about um, David Mays, about his background. Um. Yeah, I mean, with Shannon having been missing um and him a member of that gang um even before we learned details about some of the um some of the things that this gang did um i knew the name outlaws um i knew the name hell's angels i knew um these were a much different type of biker club than than just your traditional biker club sure um so when i i found out that he was associated with this and then learned um you know as more and more information came out that he was an enforcer um that that did concern me because this was after my sister disappeared and um someone someone within the club um, and someone who is considered an enforcer of the club could be capable of doing bad things to people. Sure. Um, knowing Shannon the way you did uh, kind of just goes where the wind takes her. Did, were you surprised that she might have been involved with a guy like that? Because the reputation of these guys in this gang is they're very possessive. The women in the gang are considered possessions and they have to get tattoos and all these things. Did that surprise you that Shannon was involved with a guy like that? Um, parts of it surprised me um, as I learned more and more. Um, and obviously I did some of my own investigative work to learn what this club was about and what some of the stuff I had heard represented. Um, I wasn't so surprised about the drugs and and that the guy was, you know, kind of a, a tough guy um, because that might have kind of fallen in with her lifestyle. Um, and, um, and I did know that she was involved in drugs um, to some extent um, throughout the years. Um, and I, I had no idea how much, um, but I know that she, she smoked pot, she drank, um, she probably did a few other things. What I, um, what I didn't know that I learned later was that these guys do consider their women possessions and you, you can't just walk away from these guys. They have their women tattooed with a symbol that says property of the outlaws. Um, 
and Shannon was not one to be anybody's property. That's, um, she yeah. was very independent um, and very strong-willed um, in, in a, a tough girl. She was a tough girl. Okay, that's and that's the impression that I get from it too. I I, I have to be I have to say that the women who I, at least my impression, what I think I I know about all that kind of culture is that these women tend to be very submissive, and you know, like I said, they're like possessions, and that does not sound like your sister. Well, in in um, learning later, uh, a lot of these girls were addicted to drugs um and and so that kind of lessened their inhibition and and made them more vulnerable i think that's that's a good point too valerie that's a very good point now we remember the listeners i told you to remember the name john walker regarding that phone call and in relation to the outlaws gang who did you eventually find out john walker was um i learned that john walker was the president of the local club there in Indianapolis. So when Shannon made that call to your mother's house somewhere around Thanksgiving, at the time she was actually at the president of the outlaw, the local club anyway, the president's house making that phone call. That is where that collect call originated from. Now listeners are going to be a little surprised about this, but there is a trial involved with this case. Correct. What what can you tell the listeners about the trial? So we had the, your sister's disappearance. I guess you could say maybe the trail went cold. The police didn't do uh, probably as much investigation as they could. David Mays lawyered up. Your brother and you and other family members tried to do what you could do, but you know, you can only get so far. But this wasn't the end of David Mays and John Walker and the Outlaws Gang Club. They got involved with a trial. Tell the listeners about this trial. Sure. Um, well, there had been um, a number of arrests, actually, um, in several different states. Um, to my knowledge, there had been a, a big sting operation in several states involving um different clubs, all biker club, um, in, in, uh, I'm assuming all outlaws that were arrested all on the same morning, um, different sting operations went in and arrested, uh, I believe it was over 20 or 30 guys. Oh um, it was a, it was a big arrest case and, um, David Mays and John Walker were included in that sting operation. Um, they were both arrested, um, and I believe they were, was, they were arraigned and charged under the RICO statute, um, which if people do not know, um, to my knowledge, and I had to learn this as well, um, to be arrested under the RICO statute, um, you have to be or to be convicted under the RICO statute, which was um, kind of a, a law that was put into place in the 20s um, for um, the mafia. You have to be convicted of, I believe it's three crimes that you're charged with, and then it goes with a higher penalty. 
um, is the way I understand it. Mm -hmm. So they were charged with a number of felonies, um, and and the RICO and it was it was to be charged under the RICO statute. And how how soon after Shannon's disappearance were these guys arrested? Do you remember? Um, was it the I next year? Say, was it ninety eight? Was it ninety nine? Was it two thousand? Do you remember? No, I think it was. I think it was in two thousand, maybe two thousand and one, somewhere around that time period. Um, maybe even a little later than that. Um, I had actually moved um, and was living in another area of Wisconsin at the time, and. Um, I I was actually subpoenaed to appear at that trial. And so David Mays is on trial. He got indicted. John Walker, leader of the local club in Indianapolis where Shannon made that call, he's indicted. Various other members are indicted. Of course, they have RICO charges against them, but there was another charge brought against at least David Mays. What was that charge? It was a federal murder charge in the disappearance of Shannon. So what the listeners you should take from this is that they had this big trial, and at, the, at least at that time, the federal uh, government tried to make tr uh, a case against David Mays and probably maybe others that Shannon was murdered, even though her body hadn't been discovered. So this was part right. of this trial, along with all these other charges that had to do, probably do with gambling and drug use or drug selling and, and everything else. Correct. Um, you um, did not get to view the trial because you were actually called to testify. Um, tell the listeners a little bit about that. Um, correct. Um, actually, um, two of us um, from my family were subpoenaed to testify when we arrived in, I believe it was since, you know, um, Cleveland? Um, I believe it was in Cleveland, um, Ohio. Um, that's where the trial took place um, because some of the criminals had, I believe, had been from the state of Ohio. Um, so the big Ohio case took place there. Um, my brother and I and my family flew to Ohio um, and um, we met with the federal prosecutors. Um, and at that time, um, that was the day before the trial was to start. And at that time, they decided that they would be putting me on the stand. Um, and they did not um, want to put my brother on the stand. Um, but they wanted me to testify. And what did they want you to, and this was in relation, though, just to be specific, they wanted you to testify regarding the disappearance and probable murder of your sister. They weren't asking you about any of these RICO charges. They were asking you about the murder charge. Correct. Okay. I was there to testify to my last conversations with my sister. And how did that go? Um, well, um, I... Um, was called to the stand. Um, I actually had been wearing a um, yellow ribbon on my jacket um, in remembrance of my sister. Um, and before 
questioning even begun, I was asked by the judge to step out of the courtroom, um, and I was taken out, um, escorted by a bailiff. Um, and at that time, I was asked to remove the ribbon from my jacket. Um, I did so. I, I didn't want to cause any issues with the case or or any kind of mistrial or anything like that. So I removed the rib ribbon. I was escorted back into the courtroom, sat back on the stand. Um, some questions were asked. Um, most um, most of the questions pertain to my last conversation with my sister. Um, all of them were objected to, um, and they were, um, I believe you call it sustained. Um, and um, and that was pretty much the end of my testimony. Um, so the federal, so the federal prosecutor is there. He asked you something about the uh, a question about the conversation. The defense attorney stands up and says, "I, I object." And just says sustains, which means you you can't answer that question for some reason. Correct. For some and reason, can, what was the reason? Do you know? Do you know why you weren't allowed to answer those questions? Um, no, I don't. I do recall that um, the attorney for this group of guys, who were all, by the way, sitting in the courtroom, David Mays. Um, I believe John Walker was there. There were several guys. They were all being tried in the same courtroom together. Um, but the attorney stepped up to and asked for a sidebar with the judge at some point. And um, all of the questions had been sustained. And then I was uh, escorted out of the courtroom. So you prepared all of that, the federal prosecutor worked with you and the questions and everything, and then when it got to the point where you actually went in there and testified, you didn't even get to say a word. They really didn't hear nothing, yeah, basically. Okay. I mean, nothing was recorded because it was all – and I think that some of it they, they – um, they took to be hearsay because I was questioned about the conversation with my cousin right. um, that Shannon had. So some of it, I think they might've considered hearsay and, and that's why there were objections. Do you think now in retrospect, I know it's been several years. Do you think that your answers would have been damaging uh, to the defense, do you think that your questions would have proven anything? Now that you know we're out here in the world where you, you know you're not under oath or anything, what do you what do you think now? All these years later, um, I don't think that any of my family had any contributing evidence that would have found him guilty. No, I don't think that my my testimony would have made any difference. Okay. When you found out that these guys were going to try and everything, did you were you surprised that they were going to try to charge them also with Shannon's murder? Did that surprise you? I mean, what did you think about that? No, but I I was concerned um, because with I mean I know um, even in today's um, time period, I mean there have been cases where people have been convicted without a body, but I knew that their case was thin in retrospect to, to Shannon's disappearance or 
for her murder. Um, I knew they didn't have a whole lot of evidence. Um, and so it was, it was my concern that, that he be found not guilty. Um, and then, um, I learned later that um, when he was found not, not guilty of her murder, that they could not try him again in federal court, That's, which was upsetting. Yeah, double jeopardies. And yes, you're hearing that right. That the David Mays uh, was charged with the murder. And, and let's just clarify something else. Were they, in, in putting this, this murder charge in with all of these other RICO charges that had I don't think anything to do with murder, but just illegal business of some type. Um, were they also saying that John Walker and these other guys had something to do with the disappearance, being that they were also sitting in there while you were giving your testimony? I mean, how how do you explain that? Did, did you think that was a little strange um, or something? I, I'm not sure if they... they um that that ha it was strange it was definitely strange for me sitting on the witness stand with all of these other guys a lot of them who i did not know um the only face i knew was david's um and that came from pictures that were found in her apartment um so it was it was very strange but um and you asked me before about um what i had heard after my testimony was over, yeah. I actually did get to sit in on some of the rest of the trial before I left um, Cleveland to go back to Wisconsin. Is this yeah. where you want to talk about this woman's testimony? Because we're ready to do that. It is. All right, please um, tell the listeners. It's very interesting. Please do tell the listeners. So there was a woman who was um, called to the witness stand who testified that um, that she was, I believe she was John Walker's girlfriend or wife at the time. Um, and um, she testified to some some interesting things. It was actually a couple of women who testified, but her her testimony was extremely interesting in that she testified that around the time period that Shannon disappeared, um, David Mays had showed up at her house one evening um, and he was frazzled um, beyond anything she had ever seen him at. Um, this is a guy who is an enforcer um, and he was, he was upset. He was visually um, disheveled um, and he was upset. Um, she said, she testified that um, that David and um, John, um, or actually, I don't think this was John Walker. This was someone else associated with the gang. Um, she testified that him and this man left, and they were gone. She said somewhere roughly around six to eight hours. Um, and when they returned, um, they were kind of a mess. Um, and um, and that uh, David was, was still very distraught and very upset. Um, and she indicated um, 
that she believed that that night was the night that Shannon disappeared. And so she, what you're saying is that, and to kind of wrap this all to, together, is that she's at John Walker's house. David shows up frazzled. There's some other guy at the house. David talks to this guy. They leave, and then eight hours, six to eight hours later, they come back, and it looks they're disheveled. It makes like they're, they've been doing some work or, or something like that. And to remind the listeners, this is the same house where Shannon made the collect call from somewhere around Thanksgiving. Actually, I, I don't believe that this was John Walker's house. Mm, okay. Um, I believe that it was another member of David's gang um, that he was really good friends with. And the woman was this man's wife or girlfriend. Okay. Um, I, I did, um, I did believe what she said um, when I heard her testify. Um, there, there may have been some issues with the court um, believing some of the things she said. She did appear to, um, to me to um, maybe be coming, coming out of a drug addiction or, or had lived a really drug-addicted life um, just from her speech. In her manner and the way she looked, um, she looked like she had lived a very hard life. Mm-hmm. Um, but her testimony rang rang true to me. Um, she, uh, I believe, she was um, testifying in witness, and she was being put into witness protection. So, oh, so what you're saying is this woman testified, and then. She got a new name and everything else. That's how how valuable that they is, thought. That is what I be, I believe. Um, at that time, that is what I believed that she was testifying, um, and she was in danger for her life. Um, so that certainly might lend something to the idea that David Mays might have done something to Shannon that night. And this girl was seeing a residual of that, of some something that that went down. Sure, and she, um, this girl was not only testifying about what she knew around the time period of Shannon's disappearance, but she also had um, testified about um, viewing a drug deal, a what I what it sounded like to be a, a large drug deal mm-hmm. where her and Shannon were present during this drug deal. Um, and so they both had, you know, evidence or they both were a danger, if not under control, um, by these men, by this gang. You've caught, we've kind of already foreshadowed where this went, but... These guys were found guilty on the RICO charges, but they were found, David Mays in particular, was found not guilty on the murder charge of your sister. Is that, is that, is that correct? That had to be, that had to hit you hard. That had to hit your family hard. It, it did. Um, I can't say that I was surprised. Um, I, and then at that time, I did learn 
that there would be no way to charge him in federal with the federal murder charge um, after that, I was I was angry uh-huh. that they had taken this that far um, without enough evidence to convict him. Yeah. So if anything, uh, and, and and we're gonna get into the really the 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 coup de gras on all of this in a in a moment. But um, what you're saying is is if David Mays, who is still alive. Uh, is ever going to be charged in, with anything regarding your sister's disappearance, murder, whatever happened, the state of Indiana is going to have to do that now. It's up to them. It's completely out of the federal courts now forever. That's correct. Um, and I have had conversations with the detective um, and detectives because her case has kind of bounced. I think there's now a third or fourth detective that's holding her case. Um, several of these detectives have either moved on or retired. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, I have I have spoken to them, and my family has urged them not to bring this case to to Indiana court without enough evidence to convict this man. And so David and these other guys, they went to jail. What year would that have been? Was that about two thousand two that they went to jail? Uh, yeah, approximately. approximately. Well, they had are they were already in jail um, during the time of the trial. Mm-hmm. They were they were all in jail. They weren't out on their own recognizance. But they got long sentences, somewhat long sentences. But here is what I was going to mention before. We are doing this interview on April thirteenth, two thousand seventeen. Uh, Valerie. Tell the listeners when David Mays is going to be getting out of jail for this this court case way back in 2002. Um, he's due to get out of prison next week. Next week. This, this coming week. This, this coming, coming week. week. All right. So within the next week, in the trial in which he was charged with Shannon's murder, but it was unsuccessfully prosecuted, and but all those other RICO charges, he went to jail, and just very coincidentally, uh, I didn't even know this once I when I found out about uh, Shannon Tur- uh, Turner's disappearance. Um, it's just a coincidence that we we're doing this case at the same time that this guy is going to be getting out of jail, and this yeah. so this show is not just about this disappearance uh, of Shannon. Of course, we want to solve this, but. This is also like a public service announcement that very shortly a very dangerous guy is getting back out on the streets within the next week. Correct. Wow. Okay. How do you feel about that, Valerie, if you if you can be honest uh, about this? How do you feel about that? It's it's not fair. Um, he uh, he had had a longer sentence. Um, he had gone to court and, and they reduced it a little bit. Um, but my sister is never going to get married, have children, um, live her life. And this man who took her life is going to be walking free with the potential to have a girlfriend, 
maybe even get married, um, have children, uh, things like that, um, or maybe even hurt another woman. Um, that to me is is it's just unthinkable. Yeah. What uh, over the years since it's been all all this time. You know, it's gonna it's going to be twenty years this year. Uh what um have you ever heard any rumors? Has any new evidence popped up or anything like that in the in the last twenty years or at least since uh David went to jail in, in two thousand one, two thousand two, whenever it was? Um there ha- there hasn't been any real substantial Anything that's happened during the case, there is an organization called MJA Inc. who is made up of, from what I understand, retired some retired police officers and some uh, 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 private investigators type people mm-hmm. um, who have who have. Um, made it a point they're they're looking for missing persons um they have several missing persons cases from the state of indiana my sister's case being one of them that they would like to solve um they have done some some digs where they were given a tip or or had a tip that they thought was substantial um not that came to them from the police but from their own investigative work, um, and they've they've dug up some sites, but nothing has has ever turned up or or um, been found um, as a result of their work or the work of the Indianapolis Police Department, which, by the way, has done far less than my brother or this um, organization, this MJA Inc. Okay. Of course, the outlaws are very dangerous people. They're just as dangerous now as they were back in the late 90s. And does your family fear that? Given that you you believe, your family believes that uh, one of their members and probably other members at least know what happened. Do, Do you have any fear in that? Have you, have you, frankly, have you ever been threatened or, or anything like that over the years regarding trying to figure out what happened to your sister? I've never been threatened. Um, the fear is always there um, because I am aware of how dangerous these guys are. Um, but because I've never had any hard evidence. I don't think that they would want to come after me. Um, but David Mays has been inside, incarcerated inside um, heavy walls for the last, what, um, 20 years, um, just about, or, or 15 years. So um, he's not been able to come after anyone. Um, and I, I've not heard anything that he wants to come after. Um, but, um, I mean, that potential is always there because of the type mm-hmm. of people these people are. 
Yeah. But but to, but your experience over the years, nobody's ever you never got in on his phone calls or I mean these days emails or anything like that that like that, even though these people can be dangerous. I'm just just asking. So I'm sure the listeners no, might wonder I mean, about something something like that. Early on, there were, we actually, my family actually sent letters to him at the prison where Shannon, um, you know, um, we wanted him to remember. We wanted mm-hmm. him to be guilty. We wanted him to, to be haunted by what he's done. Um, and so early on, um, I sent letters, my brother sent letters, um, and, and I, I'm not sure if other family members had, but I know that I and my brother, um, had, um, my mother stood up in, in court the day that, um, the first time we saw David in a courtroom, um, and, and she, she shouted, David, where's my daughter? Mm. But we have not been threatened. We have not gotten any indication that he is out to get us. Okay. And in, in, for the record, he's never, I mean, when he, back then at the time when the police tried to talk to him before this trial happened, he lawyered up and he has offered to your knowledge, has he ever offered any explanation as to what happened to Shannon ever? Zero. Not, not a word, not an expression of concern, considering the fact that he was engaged to her um, just two days before her disappearance. Not any concern that, I mean, he was supposed to marry her and supposedly when people marry, they love each other. Not a single word of concern, not a single word of knowledge, um, not a word to my family, not a word to the police. Not even a story like, well, the last time I saw her, she was getting on a bus headed for Las Vegas. Not even something like that. Nothing. Nothing. Okay. Valerie, what do you think went down if we were to accept that David Mays had something to do with her disappearance? What do you think happened? Um, what do I think happened or why do I think it happened? What? Why did it happen? Yes, why? That's that's a better way to put it. Why? Why do you think it happened? Well, let me ask, answer both. To answer the question, what do I think happened? I think David Mays killed her. Um, I think he killed her on that night that he was. He returned to his friend's house, um, frazzled and discombobulated, and um, I believe that was the night he murdered her. I believe there are a couple of scenarios, I believe. Um, one, Shannon knew an awful lot about his doings. She'd been um, in room with drug deals that had taken place. Um, she knew things about him as an enforcer, things he'd done. Um, and... Um, she was a risk. Um, she was a loose end. Um, she was dangerous to the entire outlaw. She had been in, um, John Walker's, um, house. So she had to be very privy to a lot of things that were spoken and talked about and done by the leaders of this gang, um, which made her dangerous. 
to them. Um, so that possibility is is foremost in what I think may have happened to her. Um, there, you know, her having called it off and seeing she wasn't going to marry this guy. There was a potential that even came possibly uh, word came from John Walker that she had to be eliminated um, because she was too dangerous. Um, that is one of the scenarios. The the other possibility is is um, a little simpler in that he was pissed off. I can't have you. Nobody's going to have you. And there was a fight, um, and he killed her. Um, maybe he showed up at her work that night and said, you know, can we talk? Um, he may have gotten her high um, before it happened. Um, and maybe he even knew that he was going to do this that night. Um, but for a man not to speak after he supposedly loved a woman, not to talk to anyone afterward, speaks volumes about guilt, in my opinion. What did this do to your family? What has this done? It's, um, I'd have to say that my family is probably a, a more distant than than we had ever been. Um, we were a pretty tight family. Christmases were held at either my house or my mom's house, Thanksgiving holidays. Um, and, um, and, uh, and that didn't happen after that. Um, my mom um, has been through various illnesses, and and um, some of it um, doctors thought were psychosomatic um, of all the depression that um, she's gone through and had to deal with. Um, my stepdad, who was, had had been my my father since um, I was um, like like. The, three years old and Shannon was a, a newborn baby when he came into my mother's life. Um, she, she was his baby. Um, he died not knowing. He died not knowing what happened to Shannon. He died not knowing what happened to his little girl. Um, there was the trial in Ohio, um, put a rift between me and my brother because they didn't put my brother on the witness stand and they put me and he felt like he should have testified, um, and that um, created some difficulties between him and I. Um, and it just it's put a seam um, right down the middle of my family. Um, maybe in in some ways that crazy, funny, hilarious girl was the glue that held this entire family together. Um, and when she disappeared, our hearts broke, and and we got we just got pulled apart um, by all the grief, um, mm-hmm. by all the things that create um, just created separate separation. Yeah. Um, and my, I know that my mom was never the same after. Um, I've never lost a child. I only have two. Um, my mother has lost two. Um, 
several years after Shannon disappeared, um, that week in December, um, my stepfather passed away of cancer, and I also lost a brother in that same year, in that same week, my my father died, my, um, my brother was shot and killed. Um, and that added to a huge amount of grief for my mother, um, and it just compounded the grief she already had, and now she's lost two children. I can't imagine losing one, but to lose two has to be devastating for a parent. Right. Do you hope that now that um, David Mays is getting back out of jail here shortly, um, you're hoping to put some uh, new focus on this? Now that he's out of jail and he's going to be walking around, I mean, it's easier to see him and to see what he's doing and everything else. Are you hoping that his release from prison can add some new light? Of course, Unfound will be doing that, but other people may be looking at this case again. Now that he's out. Uh, I mean, it's always my hope. It's always my hope that David goes out some night and gets drunk in a bar and, and shoots his mouth off. Um, so something he shouldn't. Um, or at the very least, he gets himself into trouble and gets locked back up again where he belongs. Um, so that he, that danger is taken off the streets. Um, but it's always the hope that we learned some information that would at least recover my sister's remains so that we can bury her. Valerie, do you have uh, a Facebook site or anything like that where my listeners uh, can maybe get to know you, communicate with you? Because that's a, a huge part of what Unfound does is that uh, I provide a venue as you probably know about on Facebook, that's private where the guests can talk to the listeners about the case and, and maybe they can help in some way. Uh, do you have a Facebook page for your sister? Where, where can people find out, you know, more about her uh, disappearance? Um, I don't have a Facebook page dedicated to the tour just because Facebook came after Shannon's disappearance mm -hmm. and I never, um, really thought that that media could help in in the way that we wanted it to help. Mm. But there are numerous um, missing sites yeah. where her picture and her information um, and her description, um, because she had several tattoos um, in her story, um, at least um, from a, a, a police. Um, detailed description um, are on and um, all you have to do is go to the missing or the lost um, and, and Google that and it will come up and if you put in her name you'll be able to find that information okay and what I'm going to do when this episode gets posted I'm going to post those links uh, I guess maybe awesome. to web sleuths and NamUs and my friend Megan Good's site, charlieproject.org, uh, and, and all those places. And I will, you know, and I'll help, of course, do that uh, for you. No problem. Wonderful. Uh, Valerie, anything else um, before we end the interview? Um, no, I, I think that's 
that's pretty much her story. Okay. Valerie, I deeply appreciate you joining me and the listeners on this episode of Unfound. And I, um, I can't express to you my thanks enough for what you're doing to um, call attention to our missing family members um, because you're a voice that not a lot of people and not a lot of other people are voicing. Um, and you're, you're a voice for our families. Um, when, when we can't get the police to do those, those type of things, or we can't get the media after 20 years to be interested, you're a voice for our families. Uh, I'm, uh, I'm overwhelmed by that. I, I can't, uh, you're too kind. Valerie, I deeply appreciate that. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, thank you for being on this episode of Unfound. And that was my interview with Valerie Turner, sister of Shannon Turner. I thank Valerie for telling her sister's story. I also need to thank Darlene Pitts, a former guest, sister of missing person Kathy Fry, for putting me in touch with Valerie. I'm recording... This part of the episode, a few days after I interviewed Valerie, and those words that she said to me at the end of the interview still continue to resonate. I cannot even begin to tell you how much that means to me, and I'll continue to just do the best job that I can. I also need to mention Greg Turner, brother of Shannon and Valerie, who also contributed to that interview. Well, he also made some points to me on his own. He and I had a couple telephone conversations, and I found out something that backs up one of his claims, and I think all of you are going to find it very interesting regarding Shannon, regarding Babe Showgirls, the place she was dancing that night, and the Indianapolis Police Department. First, though, I want to go over some main points from the interview with Valerie. The most important point from that interview? Yes, you heard it right. David Mays is a free man now. And by the time you are hearing this episode, he is walking around like any other free person out there. And this episode first aired on Potomatic and iTunes on April 21st, 2017. And as I think about him being in jail all that time, I have my own opinion on that. And I expressed this to Valerie in one of the conversations we had before the interview. I actually think him being in jail this whole time hurt the cause of finding Shannon Turner. Yes, I know it was probably good for society that David Mays and all of those other guys were locked up. But for the Turners themselves, it wasn't so good. Because while Mays is in jail... You can't really get in any trouble. There's no way to threaten him. He's already in jail. There's no way to entice Mays to talk. And maybe something would have happened, not necessarily with him, but maybe something else that went on with the outlaws in the last 12 to 15 years that would have caused him to talk to authorities about what happened to Shannon. As long as he was in jail, he had no reason to talk, and they surely weren't going to let him out early for revealing what he did to Shannon, and that's, of course, what we think happened. So him being in jail all this time, I think, set back the investigation into Shannon's disappearance. Also, and this is the reason this episode is called A Cautionary Tale, and I mentioned this before the interview, we all hate that the wheels of justice turn so slowly. 
if at all. But we now see the fallout from going too fast. A not guilty verdict, and all these years of the Turners having to live with the result. And the jury found Mays not guilty despite the testimony of the woman Valerie mentioned and others who backed up this woman's story. Luckily for the Turners, the city of Indianapolis or the state of Indiana can still do something. They have, I guess what you might call a backup plan. But for all of these other cases that we've covered on Unfound, it's hard to imagine that if the state were to mess up in one of these prosecutions, that the federal government would actually step in. And in fact, all these other cases, I think you could say there's no backup. The prosecutors will have to get it right the first time, unlike in this case where the federal government, of course, got it wrong, but there's still hope someday that the state of Indiana will do something. We just need to keep this all in mind as we cover more cases on Unfound where there are obvious suspects, a lot of evidence, but the prosecutors don't want to do anything. As for my conversations with Greg Turner, he gave me some excellent additional information. However, some of it was told to me in confidence, and some of it I still have yet to verify. just could not get to it before I needed to publish this episode. But I can tell you this, some of it has to do with comments by outlaw gang members since Shannon disappeared. Them saying in so many words that they believe that David Mays and others had something to do with Shannon's disappearance. Greg gave me those names, but I'm going to keep them out of this episode for now. What has borne some fruit, and certainly backs up one of his claims, and I need to preface this by all of you having to understand that we all know that there are crooked cops out there. And there are cops who are on the take from gang members. I, of course, think of the TV show The Shield that was popular on FX back in the early 2000s. That show is actually based on a true story of what was going on at a precinct in Los Angeles during the 1980s, 1990s. There are cops who are on the payroll of gangs. And that was a conversation that Greg and I had. Well, to back that claim up, I found a story from the Indianapolis Star. The story was published about six months after Shannon disappeared in June of 1998. I'm going to read the story to you. An Indianapolis woman has sued an Indianapolis Police Department officer, accusing him of harassing and intimidating her as he tried to collect a debt on behalf of a topless club. The dispute began with a broken window and escalated into two lawsuits in a Marion Superior Court. Deborah Sanders says Sergeant Dennis Riley threatened her two times while in uniform last fall after her son was arrested for breaking a window at Babe's Showgirls, 7259 Pendleton Pike. You'll remember that Babe's Showgirls is the last place that Shannon danced. Riley, 39 years old, a security guard for the club, came to Sanders' east side apartment to collect reimbursement for the broken window, she states in her lawsuit. She alleges he violated the Fair Debt Collection Practices Act. The Indianapolis Police Department suspended Riley in March for an unrelated incident. IPD Chief Michael Zunk has taken steps to fire Riley. Through an IPD spokesman Thursday, Riley denied the harassment and said he was off-duty when he did business for the topless club. 
The lawsuit, filed Wednesday in Marion Superior Court, also names the nightclub's owner, Jabba, J-A-B-A, Incorporated, and the city of Indianapolis as defendants. Several other officers were also sued. Now, I don't want to go too deep into the details of that story. All of you are surely smart enough to see the point I'm trying to make with that story. But what catches my eye is the end of the article. Several other officers were also sued. Well, the only reason that several other officers would be sued is if several other officers were also security guards at Babe Showgirls during their off-duty hours. So we have a bunch of cops who are working security at a strip club. We have a woman, a dancer there, disappear after working at that strip club. But I'm here to tell you, I mentioned this story to Valerie once I discovered it. I asked her, did you know that there were off-duty cops who were working security at Babe Showgirls back at the time that Shannon danced there? Her answer was a simple no. So not only in all of the research that she has done and her brother has done regarding all of this, have they not discovered that, but it doesn't seem like the Indianapolis Police Department ever let them know that either, which seems kind of suspicious. And this goes back to, I think, what Greg was saying, and I agree with him, that there's a belief out there that the outlaws had some Indianapolis cops on the payroll. This kind of story would certainly support that idea. So I want you to all think about that, and you can do your own research on it. You can find it uh, if you do a search. The other point I want to make is something also that Greg told me, and I looked into this as well, and this had to do with the murder of Brian Donahue in March of 1998, three or four months after Shannon disappeared. He had an affiliation with the Outlaws gang. I don't know if he was an actual member, but he dealt drugs with them. He had some sort of arrangement with them, some sort of relationship with them. He was found murdered in his apartment, like I said, in early 1998. That is a murder that is still unsolved. This is a murder that Greg told me about to look into. A few years ago, I don't know if it was the city of Indianapolis or the state of Indiana, they put together a deck of cards with unsolved murders on them and handed these deck of cards out to the prison population in the hopes that the inmates seeing these pictures on the cards, one of them might come forward and say, I know something. I went through that entire deck of cards. I found the entire deck online, and it was published several years ago, but the pictures were still online. Brian Donahue's murder is the only one in that deck of cards that can be tangentially connected to the outlaw's biker gang. And this, these are murders that cover three decades or something like that, at least three decades. The coincidental part to me is that this murder just happened to occur around the same time that Shannon disappeared. And so I can't help but start thinking, was the murder of Brian Donahue connected to the disappearance of Shannon Turner. You can't help but think about that and wonder about that. And I wonder if Indianapolis police, at least the good cops, 
could start looking into this murder of Brian Donahue, that they might also get some leads on the disappearance of Shannon Turner. And one last point. Now that David Mays is out of jail, I'm hoping that the Indiana media, the Indianapolis media, starts to take a new, fresh look at what happened in the disappearance of Shannon Turner and see if this murder of Brian Donahue, for example, can be connected to it. I think we here at Unfound are trying to start that. I'm hoping that the local media there will continue it. And that's the program. If you enjoyed this episode, I urge you to go to iTunes and give Unfound a five-star review. I would deeply appreciate it. Thank you for listening. I'm Ed Denzel, and you've been listening to Unfound. Thank you.